Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Have you ever felt like you need to leave your job, but you're just scared of getting out into the unknown? Clay Scroggins felt that. He left an incredible church, an incredible job of his dreams to go be an entrepreneur. We're going to find out why and how. Welcome to Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George. Today we're going to simplify how to leave a job you love for an unknown future. That is exactly what Clay Scroggins did as he left an incredible mega church by the name of North Point Community Church to go out on his own and do his own thing. Why would he do that? How did he do that? And what are the steps you need to take to maybe do the same? Hey, we're grateful that you're listening to us. We're on a quest to sponsor a thousand kids and help them come to uh, reach financial and spiritual and medical aid, which is all done through a great organization called Compassion International. I have worked with these people for years. We have sponsored kids for years, and they're such a fantastic organization. We wanted to promote them on our podcast. So would you just make sure to go to compassion.com slash rusty and you can sponsor a child there, and that helps us keep track of the kids that we're sponsoring. Well, today, we get to talk to Clay Scroggins. Here we go with my conversation with Clay. Clay Scroggins, finally on the podcast. I feel like we have bumped into each other time and time again at North Point Functions, and now we finally get to talk on air. Uh, I listen to you, and I hear a lot of pop culture influence, Seinfeld to P. Diddy, I see the Beatles poster behind you, Outcast, and Van Gogh. So tell me a little bit about yourself. What makes you such an eclectic person and uh, who you are? Well, that is quite a compliment, Rusty, that you see me as an eclectic person. Uh, you're <laughs> the one living in the middle of uh, where all of culture comes from, in the middle of uh, California. But yes. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. My uh, parents were Christian people. My dad was in sales. My mom was a teacher. Uh, I have an older sister and younger sister, so I felt like I was always on stage as a kid. Uh, my sisters were quick to let me be the performer for sure. Um, I moved to Atlanta when I was 18, started going to North Point Community Church. I started, I, I was in Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech to study industrial and systems engineering, which was a total joke because I did not need to be an engineer. <laughs> what, what's your undergraduate degree? Well, listen, I went right into Bible college to begin with. So, okay. yeah, I got nothing fancy like that. Okay. Well, I, when I, when I got to seminary, I definitely, I could, it was so easy to spot out the people that went to Bible college because they knew so much more <laughs> than I knew. I felt so behind. Honestly, it's, I, I was in my Hebrew, my, my Hebrew one class. It was like three weeks until I realized that you read Hebrew right to left. <laughs> and I was like, why did you not tell us that the first day? And I'm sure the professor would have been like, I did tell you. Where were you on the first day? And I was like, oh, sorry. I was hanging out with some friends. Um, so I uh, graduated from Georgia Tech. But while I was in Atlanta, I uh, got involved with North Point and just fell in love with the idea of ministry, particularly student ministry. It's what I wanted to do. I don't know. Um, I do love music. I do love pop culture. I do love, um, I like to, in, I like things that are fun. I love to enjoy things. Uh, this outcast poster means a lot to me because when I was in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, I went to their, that's their Stankonia album. And uh, I went to that album release party at the Tabernacle in Atlanta. 
That was an epic night. But I moved to Dallas, Texas to go to seminary. Met my wife there. She's a Texas A&M Aggie. And we moved to Atlanta and started working at North Point. And I did that for 18 years. Man, wow. I am learning now. People people don't work in the same place for 18 years anymore. No, that's a that's certainly a rarity. So coming from Alabama, living in Atlanta, are you are you roll tide or are you bulldogs or well yellow jackets? I, when I went to Georgia Tech, I thought, all right, I need to cheer for the yellow jackets. I, I grew up, I mean, my, the room I grew up, the 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 pillow I grew up on was an Alabama pillow. Border. This was before my mom put border on my walls because we didn't have enough money to afford wallpaper, yeah. you know. So they would put the border up there. So I had Alabama border. Alabama bedspread, pictures of Bear Bryant and Alabama greats all over the walls. So I grew up that way, but then moved to Atlanta, tried to, I mean, and I am a Georgia Tech fan, but there's just not, it is a labor of love. There's not a lot to cheer for. Uh, it's a, that's a, it's a hard, it's a hard lot if you're going to choose to cheer for the Yellow Jackets. So yes, my family all still cheers for the Tide. So 2022, beginning of the year, the national championship game in Indianapolis, I was there in the stadium cheering for the tide. Mm. Uh, that was a tough, that was a tough game, especially living in Atlanta because the Georgia Bulldogs are everywhere. But Rusty, I had a friend text me a couple days later and he was like, how is it? Is it like unbearable in Atlanta? Here's what I found. Georgia fans are honestly no different than they were before. They acted like they had won plenty of national championships before. <laughs> <laughs> so now that they have won, it's actually kind of more bearable because I'm like, hey, congrats. You did it. You know? You've actually know earned you one so- now. Exactly. I don't know why you were so exuberant before, but anyway. <laughs> you know, that's funny because I remember when I would visit Georgia, they were so wound up about the Bulldogs. And I thought, yeah. how many titles have they won? And it was like one. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's that's SEC for you. So. Okay, so you worked at North Point for many years. You worked under uh, Andy Stanley, yeah. uh, some great, great leaders there. Uh, tell me one or two things that you take away from your experience there that you learned from Andy. Uh, so many of us have learned stuff from him. We listen to leadership podcasts. We all quote him and, and give him no credit. Uh, but <laughs> what, what, what is it that you take away and go, boy, that was, really, that was really helpful. I'll never forget that. I'll always live by that. Well, there are so many, uh, so many things that I watched Andy do. Andy's not a, um, you know, I think because he he's a little bit of a, I was going to say he's a self-made leader. I mean, obviously he worked for his dad and um, get so much from his dad, but I don't, I don't get the sense that his dad sat him down and said, Hey, here's what leaders do. Listen to me. Yeah. I think he, he had to learn that uh, on his own in a way, or at least by watching his dad, watching others and learning the do's and don'ts and how you lead. And he really, he, my experience was he leads the same way. There were, the moments were rare where he said, where he would say, all right, everybody listen, I need to tell you something about leadership. So much of what I learned from him was just watching him lead. And one of the things that I will, uh, that I, there are so many things that I'm so grateful for, but one of them is he, uh, he has an extreme sense of ownership for his job. And he expects that out of the people that he works around as well. He, it, the, the times when he got most mad at me, and there were a couple of significant moments that I will never forget where he did get super mad at me, and he, legitimately so, were when he felt like I was not owning the role like I should be owning it. When I was shifting blame, when I was blaming 
my bosses to the people that worked for me. And it's really kind of the cardinal sin of leadership for him is when you pass the buck or when you don't own the role that you're in. And so I really, <laughs> I, I came to admire that so greatly is that just that um, extreme sense of ownership that what we're doing is so important and uh, it requires us to say, Hey, if everything else fails, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. And uh, I watched him do it loads of times. That's really good. I love the way you boiled that down for us. And I, I have heard that before. I've heard you tell stories about that before. <laughs> so you have this great experience working at North Point. You decide to leave. And sometimes people leave because it's time for something bigger and better. Yeah. Uh, in your case, you were a campus pastor. Maybe it's time to go get your own program, so to speak. You left uh, for nothing, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you had, had really nothing on the horizon other than your books and your own leadership brand that you wanted to you know, kind of launch out in. I guess where, I, where I'm getting at is we have a lot of people right now that have lived through the COVID season and think, I want to be my own boss. I want to work from home. I want to do my own thing. I'm going to leave, as you know, we're seeing in society, the great resignation going on. How do you know when it's time to leave a job that you love for the unknown? Ooh, that's a million dollar question right there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You'll tell me in a year, I, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't even know that I know, but that is certainly the question that I asked over and over again for the past couple of years. Um, I'll, I'll give just a little bit of context for my own journey. I mean, I, yeah, I've worked, I mean, it, you know, Andy was such a huge mentor for me. Our church, I, I look back now and I, 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 I questioned myself as to how right this was. But when I went off to seminary, um, I, you know, I, I, I was flabbergasted by my co, by my uh, peers who were sending out resumes to interview at churches and get jobs at churches that they had never attended. I just thought, why are you doing that? How, you're going to go work at a church and you've never even been there before. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that because I really felt like I was sent to seminary from this church that I was a part of to go get trained so that I could come back and lead hmm. with a greater sense of theology and a, uh, a, a healthier perspective on scripture and uh, more equipped to teach. And so the idea uh, of going to work at some other church, I just couldn't believe it. And so I remember getting in arguments with people about and saying, even, I don't even know if I'm called to ministry. I just know I'm going to get trained to go back and work at this church. So that's how much I loved our church. I mean, that's how close, that's how the, the deep affection I felt for our church. I mean, we still attend our church. Um, even after working there 18 years and leaving, we weren't really looking to go anywhere else. So yes, when I started feeling this sense of uh, restlessness about two or three years ago, the, the simplest way I've found to say it is that I have, I discovered that I was in a job that was great, but I was in a job that was no longer right. Hmm. And that is, that makes it more confusing. It's easier when the job's miserable. It's easier when you think, oh my goodness, like I'm underpaid. Uh, they're working me to death. They don't care about me. They've got no plan for my future. And for me, uh, there was at least three of those boxes. I felt like very easy to check. Um, now it was hard for them to have a plan for my future because I had hit my lid in a way. I mean, I had gone about as far as I could go. So I don't blame them for not having a plan for my future. I think there's a lot of personal responsibility that we have to take. 
in our own relationship with God and our own vision for our own life to be able to have a plan for our career. But uh, it's more complicated when the job's great. And that was my situation. I mean, I loved it. It was great. But I, over time, discovered more and more that it was not right. So I would just tell you that the best thing that happened to me that made it the most clear, I had four friends. And every time I say this, I feel like I'm like the uh, I'm the guy on the mat that the four friends lowered down to Jesus, you know, went the extra mile to rip the roof off and help this guy out. These friends came. Uh, they One of them was kind of the leader of the pack and called me one day and said, hey, we don't get the sense that you're thriving. And we also don't get the sense that you have a really strong vision for where you're going. Hmm. We, most people would go sit in the woods for a day and figure that out. You're such an extrovert. We know you're probably not going to do that. So we would like to help you do that. We want to come over to your house, sit on your back porch and talk about your life and where you're headed, particularly your professional life. Hmm. So at first I said no, because I thought, well, the whole, y'all are just trying to make me quit. And um, they, uh, a couple of them worked at North Point. One of them had resigned from North Point and another one was not, uh, didn't work at a church. And so um, they, I eventually said yes. They spent about half a day asking me all kinds of questions. You know, what do you, what, what do you love? Best day at work? What do you hate? What drives you crazy? What's your relationship with Andy like? Um, what are the most hurtful, harmful, hard failures that you've had in the past? I mean, they asked me all kinds of questions and I just shared and shared and shared. And then um, through their counsel and advice, um, that is what over time gave me the clarity to be able to say, okay, I, I have a sense now that the job I'm in, though great, is no longer right. That was the only way I could have come up with that is through the, um, that experience with those four friends. So I would just say, you know, I, I hesitate to give anyone advice to your question of how do you know when it's time? Because it is so personal. It's so, you know, it's like asking somebody, what was your experience like getting your wisdom teeth out? Some people are going to be like, it was great. Some people are like, it was hell on earth, you know? <laughs> so I, I would, I hesitate to give just blanket uh, advice to anybody, but I would just say the quicker and the more vulnerable you can be in inviting your community. I mean, the people that know you the best that have nothing to gain, whether you stay or whether you leave, I would say the quicker uh, you can invite them in and the more vulnerable you can be with them, the closer you're going to be able to be to get to that answer. Man, there's so much good stuff in there. I think about you have a community of people around you that cared enough about you to even do this. And they asked you some great questions, which everybody listening right now that's thinking about this should rewind this and just write those questions down. Let me flip the script on you mm -hmm. for just a second. Let's say you're doing that for somebody else. What were two or three of the questions they asked you that you would ask somebody else because they were so helpful for you? Well, the one that sticks out the most is one of them I'll never forget looks at me and he goes, why is quitting the worst thing in the world to you? Hmm. I've been there 18 years. So again, this is not, I hadn't been there six months, you know? And I said, huh. And without even thinking, and I'm, a, I'm an extrovert, so I externally processed. So I hadn't thought about this statement before. I said, huh. Well, quitting's not the worst thing in the world to me, but it is to my dad. Mm. And of course, they're all looking at me like, might want to pay attention to that. Yeah. Tell us more, you know? Yeah. And so I, I have a dad who he's an amazing dad. I mean, awesome, incredibly supportive, wonderful dad. He stayed in the same job that he was in for about 40 years. And I've since talked to him about this. And he actually got a little frustrated with me because I interpreted the situation incorrectly 
uh, and he helped me understand it more correctly. But <laughs> from my vantage point, uh, he had he loved his job for about the first 30 years. And then something changed and he didn't love it so much the last 10. It was, it was a, a bit obvious that he wasn't exactly thriving in his job, but he stayed in his job because that's what you do. Yep. You stay. Quitters quit, but we don't do that. We stay in our job. And that, you know, some of that's his generation. Some of that's um, his, his own character. And some of that is some fear of what's on the other side. So they, they then asked me, okay, if you could go back and ask your dad excuse me, if you could go back and give your dad some advice at year 30, when things started to shift, what would you tell him? And that was the clarity that I needed because then I started just, you know, saying, I basically I'm telling my dad 20, 30 years ago, what I should be telling myself, which was dad, there's more to life than work. Um, there's more to life than this job. There are other jobs that you can't even see right now that aren't worse for you. They might actually be better for you. Mm. Uh, and I know the fear on the other side of this is what if I don't make as much money? What if I don't like it as much? What if I don't work with people that I love? What, what will this mean for me? You won't know until you try. You won't know until you take the risk. And there's so much about this risk that is about you overcoming that fear. And you should just take the leap. And go try something else. There, you, you have so much to offer. And there is a place where you could really exercise the gifts that you have in a way that would really help other people even more than you're doing now. And so, of course, they're all just listening to me being like, yeah, you should, you should listen. To, you know, so, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's essentially what, you know, but again, that was in, I think that was in November. I didn't resign until the next July. So it took me months after that to actually listen to myself. Uh, because I just wasn't, I wasn't there yet. Um, and I, you know, I, not everybody <laughs> needs to quit their job. That clearly. sounds pretty good. <laughs> but what I've learned is if you're wrestling with should I stay or should I go, it's not helping you and it's not helping your organization. The emotional duress that comes from the wrestling makes you less effective at your job. So whether you, the answer is go or the answer is stay, you need to get to the bottom of it. You need to learn whatever it is that God's trying to show you, that God's trying to help you understand about yourself, about him, about your faith, about your community, because resolution is better than the waffling. It's better than the emotional duress that comes with the indecision. And so once I finally was able to make the decision, I mean, just the, the weight that was lifted, even though now I didn't know how I was going to get health insurance. I had to get a new literary agent. I don't exactly know what my retirement's going to look like now. Hmm. I'm not a part of a large organization. I don't exactly know what I'm going to be doing in my future. I put all that on the table, but still the weight was so much lighter because the wrestling is just such a um, emotionally intense experience that I just, I would not, I don't wish on anyone because it is, it is really intense, but, it, but at the same time, it's a little bit like middle school, you know, you, uh, you would never want to go through it again, but you're so glad you did because it made you who you are. So I would certainly say that was that was my experience going through it. <laughs> okay, give me a give me what give me a bad experience in middle school for you. Oh gosh, my friends all moved away in middle school, so I I was lonely in middle school. Uh, they all went to this private school. Like three of them moved at once. Um, oh, here's the worst one. I was taken. I'm, I'm not. I'm not, uh, I, I, my IQ is not off the charts, 
but at the school I went to in Alabama, I was a high performer. <laughs> and I, in seventh grade, we had to take this gifted test to find out if you were going to go to the program at Duke that they did during the summer. And I was, um, I just would rather be cool than appear to act like I was trying. Mm. And so I sat in the back of the classroom in seventh grade with a friend of mine named Corey, who I think was in a gang at the time. And we answered the, we <laughs> answered every high. question on the, yeah, honestly, we answered every question on that test with lyrics from uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre's The Chronic. <laughs> and uh, my teacher ended up telling my dad about it about three days later. She was just saying, Hey, I was just concerned. Like I looked at his test and like, he was obviously making a mockery of his test. And I'm just worried that he's not applying himself. And my parents were so furiated with me because they felt like I wasn't applying myself and I was uh, not giving it my all. Man, that was the last time I ever did not apply myself. So no concern about the content of the lyrics or, you know, any kind of uh, aggression towards the police or anything like that, huh? Not, not in seventh grade. <laughs> no, I didn't know what half of it meant. Man. No, not in seventh grade. Well, I, middle school for me was pretty good, but I still remember. In the, Kansas? Yeah, in Kansas. I still remember to this day, a kid named Joel Price. Joel, if you're listening, I'm trying to forgive you, but he was a bully to me. And uh, mm. Joel always wore Vans checkerboard vans and so when vans kind of made a comeback a while ago mm-hmm. had a hard time buying them you weren't having man them. i tell you what haven't bought the checkerboard ones yet that's for sure but what what where did what was the city in kansas wrestling? well it's outside of wichita a little town called andover okay. uh which is where i andover. was from how many people in andover uh well less than north point so there you go <laughs> <laughs> A couple thousand? Uh, well, a little bit more than that. Uh, a graduating class was uh, 125 kids. So, oh wow, okay. I knew them all. Okay, so I want to go back to this: you you leaving your job because yeah. um, you, you brought up some great things to consider. Did you do any kind of like you know personality tests or assessments or the, you know the job placement stuff that everybody goes through? Did that work for you at all? I did not. I, I had a. Uh, one of the perks of my job at North Point, one of the many perks of that job was I had a professional coach that I paid monthly to meet with. Was that Fran Lamatia? No, it was a guy named Dean Harbury. So okay. A lot of people, I mean, Fran and Dean are kind of the two okay. goats of coaching. I mean, you can only have one goat, but they're the two most popular coaches. But a lot of people meet with Fran and then some meet with Dean as well. But he was, um, I would say that was... I, I felt pretty confident about the whole process because I was meeting with him on a fairly frequent basis. Um, but no, if there, if there are assessments and tests that would help you, I mean, I, you know, I've done all the, I've done as many as I feel like I know to do. So I feel like I, uh, I don't know what, I think Pete Scazzaro says that most people are only at best 40, 45% self-aware. So none of us are as aware of ourselves as we think we are, but, Wow, that's um, interesting. It is interesting. We're all in a process to really learn ourselves better so that we can love others better. But yeah. I um I do feel like I've done as many of those as I can. What 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 makes you ask that? Or have you do you have well, experience with me? I mean, I I think we're all obsessed with those kind of things. We all learn a little bit more about ourselves. Some of it's just a lot of the same thing. I remember the series you did uh, with the uh, the author and psychologist about you yeah. said, I heard, those kind of things. Yeah, we did yeah. that as a church as well. It's great, great stuff. All of it's helpful. But I was just thinking for some of our listeners, what would be the best thing for them to really figure out? 
Excuse me for one moment while I interrupt this conversation to remind you about a chance to sponsor kids in third world countries. If you have not already gone to Compassion.com slash Rusty, will you choose to do that today? Maybe over dinner tonight with your family, decide to sponsor a child and change their life forever. Compassion.com slash Rusty. Thanks so much. Back to the episode. I, I think it's, the, I mean, I know this might be too simplistic, but subjecting yourself, availing yourself to the people around you, mm. I think is the best way, you know, um, Reggie Campbell was a longtime elder at North Point and did radical mentoring and wrote a number of books. One of the mentor like Jesus and what, what radical husbands do radical wisdom, a daily devotional that he wrote. But yep. Reggie was a really close mentor friend of mine. Mm. And I'll never forget. I was speaking at this men's event right before it's, I mean, 10 minutes before it started, I, the, the topic was identity. I had a sermon built that I had, developed and thought through and was ready to preach. But um, I bumped into Reggie in the hall right before. I said, Reggie, I'm preaching on identity. What do you tell people about identity? <laughs> and he said, identity is best when it is ascribed to us. <laughs> and then, you know, then he walked away, you know, and I yeah, was like, Whoa, he disappeared. That is, that's better than anything I have. <laughs> but I, I have never, Reggie died about a year and a half ago. I mean, massive loss in my life uh, and in so many people's lives. But um, I will never forget that line that identity is best when it is ascribed to us. We just can't accurately define ourselves on our own. We need someone outside of us to say, this is who you are. Now, obviously, there's a danger in who we let do that. You know, right. if you let, you know, if you're in middle school and you let your friends do that, that, that can get you in a lot of trouble. And, 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 the, and the heart of it is, that when we let our heavenly father tell us that's when it's that's when we're at our best but i think one of the ways that he does that is through our communities through the people around us and to have those friends tell me that day hey you're you need to be on a stage speaking to people that is a gift of yours you need to be in an environment where you are helping all kinds of different people if you're not doing those um, you're not going to be doing what you should be doing and they also said there are thousands of ways to pastor people that working at a local church is one way to do that. Now, I still believe the local church is God's primary vehicle through which he's going to reach the world. I believe that when I worked at a church and I don't work at a church now, and I still believe that. And so we still attend Buckhead Church and we volunteer at Buckhead Church. I preach a lot on Sundays at other churches, but whenever I'm in town, I'm there volunteering with third graders, just standing next to my wife, greeting kids as they come through the door. But we still believe that, but I have learned that there are loads of ways to be able to help people, encourage them in their faith, to help them grow in their faith. And I think a lot of times when we make these binary options for ourselves, that if I'm not doing this, then I've got to do this. Mm. I think that's when we miss out on the thousands of options that are in between those two oftentimes. And so that was a... Mm. That was a big breakthrough for me that I really could have only found if, because I had these friends that were bestowing my identity. They were ascribing my identity to me. They were telling me, hey, here's how we see you. This is your uh, this is your gift to the kingdom of God. And I needed them to do that in that moment for sure. Mm, that's really good. Okay, so uh, you've been gone now for several months. Everybody I talk to and I haven't done an investigation on this. It just so happens that when I talk to people from North Point, they speak very highly of you and the way that you left. Uh, how do you leave a job well? Uh, what would you say to our listeners on that one? I think you want to leave like you're planning on coming back. 
I think that that's a good word. Simple advice was the most, um, it just clarified everything for me. So a good friend of mine told me that, you know, I was just telling him about all the challenges I was feeling. And, um, he said, Hey, I think you just need to think about you. You might be coming back. And I don't think he was saying that prophetically. I don't think he was just saying, Hey, I'm not even saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying you ought to leave like that. And that was so clarifying because I thought, okay, um, I really do want to leave in such a way that if I were to come back, that they would welcome me with open arms and that not, there wouldn't be anything awkward there. So yeah. um, it was, um, that was super simple, but really foundational and helpful for me. I mean, the, the hard work of identifying the emotional side of it, I mean, that has been a, I, I mean, I'm an Enneagram 7, so everything about pain I run from. So nothing about, I mean, I didn't, I mean, learning how to grieve it, I'm still doing that. Learning how to identify the places where I felt wronged and the places where I was wrong, um, that's still a journey for me. But I, I think um, not feeling any pressure to do that immediately was also really helpful. Recognizing that, you know, life's a, it's a it really is, there, it's a marathon, it's a journey, that there's time to do that. But as far as leaving right now, I'm just going to work on honoring the people that I felt so grateful for and trying to do my best to leave like I was planning on coming back. That's a great, great sentence. Boy, I wouldn't have expected anything less than a perfect bottom line from somebody <laughs> from North Point, but that's that's brilliant. Hey, can we talk about preaching for just a second? And I want to yeah. get into what you're doing now in this new book you have out, um, because uh, your literary agent is mine as well, and he would fire me if I didn't bring up your book. So, uh, great guy. Don Gates, we love you. Uh, but I want to talk about preaching for a second, because anybody who does it is a student of it. And you know, Andy for years kind of promoted the me, we, God, you, we approach to an outline. Mm. Um, you're younger than Andy. Uh, I always felt like you were the, um, you know, kind of a little bit more on the cutting edge as far as uh, experimentation, research and development, that kind of stuff at North Point. Are you seeing or are you discovering different ways to teach that are more uh, useful for this next generation? Do you still work with me, you, God, you, we, or do you do something else? Or is there just something better that works for you and your personality? Talk a little bit about teaching in the next generation. I, I like that flow. I mean, and, and Dallas Seminary, uh, which is where I went to school, they taught um, a similar approach. I mean, it was, you know, you you tell some story and do something to connect with the audience. And then you find the need. What's the need that people have or uh, in communicating for a change, Andy and Lane call it the tension, yeah. uh, which is the, the we part, that second pronoun. Um, I still think that us opening up scripture and shining the light that, you know, 30, 40 minute light that we have doing everything we can do to shine the light on the scripture and let it be what, um, what people really leave with. I, th I still think that's the most, that's our greatest opportunity at change our greatest opportunity to try to impact someone. Um, I feel more uh, convinced than ever that falling in love with Jesus, falling in love with the Bible ought to be the goal of the sermon that people leave, not talking about the sermon, but they leave going, man, I, I'm thinking about God differently or I'm thinking about the way he thinks about me differently, or I can't stop thinking about that passage. Mm. Um, 
I still think that ought to be the heart of it. But I do think trying learning how to capture people's attention in 2022 or whenever it is that you're listening to this, it does feel more difficult than it once did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, some of the, some of the communication forms that really connect with me, um, you know, they're really not sermons. They're, um, some things that I see on streaming networks like, uh, Hassan Minhaj, his standup act on Netflix. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of foul language in it, but it, it, the, the way he communicates through story and through media is just remarkable. I mean, the pictures that pop up at the right moment to illustrate what he was feeling when he got in the fight with his parents, when he was a kid, when they were mad because he wasn't going to med school. Um, it just communicates so deeply. I think because of uh, people's shorter attention span, I mean, everybody's watching a screen, but everybody's holding a screen while they're watching a screen. So trying to get people's attention just feels so much harder now than it did. So I do think we have to be more dynamic than just the spoken word. And I think that's part of what I always felt inferior with is, I mean, Andy is just a master with words and I always felt like, man, I, um, I don't have that same mastery. And so I have to find other ways to communicate. Now the the danger is, you know, I don't remember who said that, but uh, if you can't, if you can't preach without the illustration, then you're not going to be able to preach with the illustration. You know, I do think there's something true about that, that Hmm. um, at its essence, we have to be able to open up God's word and try to find the need or the tension that the scripture had. Why did Paul say this? Why did Jesus say this to these people? And oftentimes we can find the the need or the tension there, but Mm. um, that's good. I just think it's, I think we've got to, I think we have to focus on being more dynamic. I think, you know, being shorter, trying to say in a few minutes or a couple statements, what we're trying to say and a little bit longer is always harder. That's something I'm not great at. Mm. It's much easier to just use a bunch of words. I mean, the answer I'm giving you right now is a lot of words, (laughs) but I think we've got to um, pay attention to some of the trends that are happening in media and culture. If we're going to continue to try to communicate this amazing hope that we have to a world that needs it now more than ever. That's good. That's good. Okay. So along the journey, you discovered, hey, you're a good writer and people are reading your stuff. Um, your book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, first of all, I have title envy on that. It's brilliant. And the content lived up to the billing. Uh, our staff went through it. We watched the videos. They were creative. They were engaging and they had great, great stuff to say. Um, what? Let me just talk about that book for just a second. That's several years old now. Correct. Now, having, having lived a few years, having resigned from your job, having been in charge, not been in charge, would you change anything, add anything to that, how to lead when you're not in charge? Oh, wow. I have not thought about would I change anything. I mean, I've definitely thought, gosh, do I still believe it? I mean, I, you know, I can't tell you how many friends texted me after I resigned. We're like, oh, what are you going to write next? How to leave when you're not in charge? You know, that was the most common one, which is that is really good. Um, That's at least a blog. You should put that together. That's true. But yes, I, I have determined that I still do believe it because, I mean, well, first of all, 99% of the world is not in charge. I mean, the, the, the intent was, hey, most leadership content is written to the 1% that's in charge. What about the rest of us? You know, the rest of us are going, okay, so am I just trying to be a star performer 
until I get in charge? Mm. Or can I really do something? Can I really make something now? And I uh, passionately still believe that the opportunity that you have to lead, no matter what position you're in, it matters today that the great, the people that have changed the world, they didn't change the world because they had a title. They changed the world because they were able to cultivate influence. And what we're doing to cultivate influence when we're not in charge is more important than what we do when we are in charge, because we're building this leadership muscle. We're, we're learning something, we're growing something that we will ultimately use when we are in charge. And eventually you will be in charge of more than you're in charge of now, probably. Uh, but what you're most in charge of now is leading yourself, the attitude that you bring every day, the ability that you have, the skill you have to add value to any meeting, any relationship at any point in time. And then that willingness you have to say, you know what, I'm not going to become passive. I'm not going to sit back mm. and, uh, you know, <laughs> moan and groan and complain about all that I don't have. I'm going to take what I do have and take the problems that are in front of me. And I'm going to bring active thought and intentionality to them to try to make somebody's life better. So I still definitely believe in it. Um, there is a part of me that looks back on my journey and thinks, was I just writing that to try to fix, to try to express this frustration that I felt? But um, no, I really think I was going, all right, instead of uh, being frustrated at what I don't have, I'm going to look in the mirror and channel that energy to try to work on, to control the one thing that I can that I can control. And that's the way I'm leading myself. Yeah. That's the attitude that I'm bringing every day, the skill to bring value and then the willingness to reject passivity. That's such a good word. I was listening to our friend, uh, Carrie Newhoff's podcast the other day. I forgot which one it was, but it was obviously brilliant. But the guy was talking about, we, we used to want to just be stars. Now we have to recognize it's, it's actually more galaxies and, oh, that's great. you know, we, we've got all these little stars around. And I think the, the thing you and I wrestled with is if I can't be, you know, Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick or Craig Groeschel, I must not have anything to say. But really, right. I have my own circle of influence, so I need to lead myself well and lead that area well before anything else is available. That's right. That's. I mean, it's it's Jesus' principle of leadership, right? I mean, he said if you're able to be trusted with a little bit, then yeah, you are proving that I can trust you with more. That's so true. That was true. 2,000 years ago, and it is just as true today. That's kind of the way it is with what Jesus says, isn't it? <laughs> Man, no kidding. Okay, so I want to transition to your new book, The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future, Nine Surprising Ways That Leadership is Changing. Now, I don't want to give away all of the book because I want people to get it, but give us a couple ways leadership is changing. Well, I was, uh, you know, this was uh, one of those topics that you bump into just out of pure passion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, you know, this is 2020, the whole world's changing. Uh, I had written a couple of leadership books. And so I'm the accidental leadership author. I bumped into this leadership category. And of course, the more I started thinking about it, I started thinking about the way the future is just so different in regard to leadership. And I would, I started researching the topic. Okay, well, how is leadership changing? What are people saying? And every time I would find a blog or an article or a Um, any kind of publication, I would get the same thing that, yes, leadership is changing. Leadership is changing. But how is it changing? That was the question (laughs) that I, that I just, I, I, it was harder to find. And so for me, you know, I'm obviously not a fortune teller. I'm not a future teller. I, 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 your guess, Rusty is just as good as my guess, but I just thought I'm going to put some time, energy, effort. I'm going to ask as many people as I can ask. I'm going to do as much research as I can do to try to hang my 
uh, picture of the future up on the wall to say this is where leadership is going because that Wayne Gretzky line that we use so much in organizations that you don't skate to where the puck has been, you skate to where the puck is going, that I believe like you believe that we all need to be developing into the kind of leader that the future is going to demand of us. And most people are calibrated to lead a world that no longer exists. I mean, the world clearly has changed. Yeah. And we learn how to lead in a world that is so different than the world that is today and the world that will be tomorrow. And so for me, you know, it's some of the, that command and control style, the fake it till you make it, the don't let them see you sweat, you know, don't ever have any chinks in your, or at least don't show any chinks in your armor, um, stand up with confidence and control and deliver um, without any flaw. I mean, that, that idea of leadership is just, um, hmm. I think there's so much skepticism around it. And there's so many different reasons why, but um, learning how to develop into the kind of leader that's willing to say, hey, I, I don't know. Um, the one that's willing to admit to flaws, the one that's willing to accept failure, the one that's willing to be vulnerable, the one that's willing to give trust even before people earn trust. Uh, I think that's the kind of leader that we all want. And that's, I believe, the kind of leader that the future is going to demand us to develop into. So the book is a great, uh, I won't say prediction, prophetic word. I should say, mm, from you. There you go. You and Leonard Sweet, the futurists, right. <laughs> uh, guiding us into the future of leadership. It's really great stuff and great stuff for us to think about, to wrap our minds around. Clay, uh, you have so much great stuff for the church and for leaders in general, whether or not you lead a church or wh whether you're just a leader in a church. All of us lead in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, tell us where they can find all of your resources. Well, ClaySproggins.com is the easiest place to go or, you know, follow me on social media uh, at Clay Scroggins on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on TikTok, but I can't figure out, you know, it's that it's that tricky thing of going, am I trying too hard if I start putting out TikTok videos? Um, <laughs> I was in the car last week, Rusty. My kids, uh, somebody, a, a friend of mine, they're actually moving to California. He's in a, he's a, He's an aspiring YouTube influencer. His wife's a really talented artist and she was throwing a little goodbye party. And she said, Hey, we'd love for you and Jenny to attend. So I respond, my kids are in the back seat. They see it. They're like, what are you? And I was like, Oh, they're moving. Oh, okay. We are going to go. Yeah, we're going to go. And so I voice text. I said, count me in. And my kids go, Oh, cringe dad. No one says count me in. Who says that? And I'm like, a lot of people say that. I don't know. What was I supposed to say? And they said, you just respond and say, bet. And I was like, bet? And they're like, yeah, you just say bet. It means like, yeah, I'm going to do it. See you there. You better believe it. Of course. And I was like, well, I'm not going to say it. So I responded to her and I said, hey, my kids tell me that I'm supposed to say bet to you, but we'll be there. So I think every parent... You can appreciate how dumb you feel when you're trying to be cool. Anything I do, I feel like with my kids, I'm like, me trying to do it is already not cool. So I, I have not figured out whether or not to post on TikTok. But you can find me in all those other places. And hey, I would love for you to reach out. I, I just, Rusty, I can't thank you enough for being the kind of pastor that people like me can look up to, but also for doing a podcast like this. This takes time. This takes energy. This takes effort. Mm. And you're genuinely trying to help leaders like myself 
who are trying to figure this thing out. And I just really appreciate your voice in this ever complex world. It, yeah. uh, it really stands out. So thank you well, for doing this. I appreciate that. I love that you have a podcast now. Some of it's just you talking, some of it's interviews with a bunch of no names, you know, like Andy Stanley, Louis Giglio, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's really helpful. And, uh, uh, I can't wait to see what God does in your journey next. Although I love this chapter, I think you've got a lot of great stuff to say, and, uh, it's going to benefit a lot of churches, a lot of leaders. So well, thank you. keep doing what you're doing. Okay. I'm going to let you go after I ask this question. What's your favorite Beatles song? Listen, that, uh, are, do you do Disney plus? <laughs> yes, I have not seen the documentary yet. Okay, that Get Back documentary on Disney Plus. I don't know why, but I could not get enough of it. I loved it. So I would say my current favorite Beatles song. I would probably say, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel so judged by saying this, but I want to hold your hand. No, <laughs> thank you. It's probably a long and winding road. Uh, okay, that's no, that's scene that's credible. He's in the background. They're just like talking about like how the show's gonna go, what they're gonna do. He's just in the background, just pl- like messing around on the piano, and then you start to hear it. You're like, oh my gosh, he's just back there writing "Long and Winding Road," <laughs> and you're like, this is amazing. Like I'm watching this being birthed into the world, but it's just such a beautiful sweet little song that i do think kind of uh it probably i probably relate to it right now because i feel like i'm on this long and winding road you know yeah your career is never this like direct linear line yeah. it's always this back and forth kind of thing it's never a staircase is it that's right. I, that's right. I i would just add in my two cents and i think yesterday may be one of the most perfect songs ever written i agree it's just beautiful it's pretty phenomenal i'd never get enough of that one so it's but i know that's not really the beatles that's just paul but he was a beatle at the time. How, how, how old are your kids, Rusty? Uh, my oldest is 19. My youngest is 17. Both girls. What did they say about the Beatles? Um, not much. Nothing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I said, girls, you, you have no idea. I mean, this is the Taylor Swift right. of our days. My kids are like 12 down to 4. And like when I was watching Get Back, like they would come in our room and they were like, oh my gosh, are you watching this again? Like they just thought it was so boring. And they're just like, we just don't get it with the Beatles. And I, I'm sure there are some amazing parents out there who have introduced their kids to the Beatles well. Kids appreciate it, but I have not figured out how to do that yet. Yeah, I, I guess not. We need to sit them down and play all the backward masking songs, you know, <laughs> and losing the sky with diamonds and what that means. <laughs> That's right. That's Good right. parenting moves like that. That's right. Okay, brother. Right. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Rusty. Wow, I love that conversation. Clay is such a great guy and so fun to be around. And I I know that you're going to want to check out his book and his leadership materials. I'm telling you, the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, is one of the greatest resources you can give your team about how to be a great leader, even if they're not necessarily in charge of the whole organization. As always, leave us a review and a rating that would mean the world to me next week. We have a conversation with a guy who's written a brand new book called Even If. What a great, great read this is about even if uh, God doesn't come through the way I want him to, I'll still follow. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of us have had over the past few years. So we're going to talk with Mitchell Lee next week. Uh, As always, you can rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Please share it with a friend and cannot wait to talk to you next week. As always, keep it simple.
Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.